Tonight's reading is taken from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is God's word. It's great to be uh, back here to see some old faces and lots of new faces as well. And what a wonderful passage to look at together tonight. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Our Father God, we, we do ask for your Spirit's help. We pray that you would help us not just to understand these words, but to believe in them, so that whether we're very new to these things or familiar with them, we might grow in our understanding of the truth about Jesus and the wonder of the cross. Amen. Uh, when I was uh, 16, I sailed in a tall ship's race on a big old three-mast wooden schooner vessel, and two things stick in my mind from that voyage. Uh, the first was the sheer amount I puked up in just the space of five days. It was basically one continual technicolor yawn with me leaning over the side of this vessel. Uh, I didn't have much body weight, and I lost half of it probably um, being sick. Uh, enough of that. Uh, the other thing that sticks in my mind uh, was the first night that I was on the helm, steering the ship's wheel. And we were in the channel... And it was, a, it was a windy and quite blustery day. We were in heavy seas as well. And I was put on duty at the midnight watch. I was about five foot five and every bit as, well, muscly as I am now. And I was told, steer the ship onto the, the bearing 070 degrees, which I did. 
That was the easy part. The hard bit was staying on that bearing because every time a wave broke over the prow of the ship and every time the wind gusted, we swung to port or to starboard. Every time. And so it was basically a four-hour wrestling match between me and the ship to try and stay on the bearing. And the thing is, it really, really mattered because the channel, the English channel, is uh, one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. And either side of us were 50,000-ton tankers and freighters steaming along relentlessly. If I'd lost the fight to keep us on bearing 070 degrees, we'd have been turned into matchsticks, and the supertanker would probably have never noticed as it plowed straight over us. It's just a simple fact. This passage isn't about sailing. It is about Jesus' death on the cross. Now, if you're new to Christian things, this is what the heart of Christianity is. This is what it's all about. At the risk of being slightly rude, if you don't get this, you don't get Christianity at all. But if you do get this, don't worry about how thick the Bible is. If you get this, you've really got it. For most people here, I guess, for most people here, I have nothing new to tell you tonight. Nothing you haven't heard before, probably a thousand times. But the thing is that like ships, you and I get blown off course continually, not by the wind that's blowing in London at the moment, but by our forgetfulness. We get distracted from the cross by just all the busyness and the fun and the opportunities of London life. We've got careers to build. We've got eye gadgets to upgrade, festivals to go to, girls to chase, boys to chase. Life is busy and we just drift off course. Or by the suffering and the difficulties that come to us all and that make us doubt the truth of God's word. And it really matters that we don't get blown off course. Because there is no other salvation than the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is no other way of salvation. And so if you and I drift away from trusting in Jesus' death, we are in real danger. If you lose sight of the cross, if you drift from the cross, a couple of things happen. This is how you can tell it's happened. Uh, Firstly, we end up crushed with guilt over sin. Or, alternatively, we end up foolishly living as if my hard work, my efforts, the the good things I do, my, my diligent attendance at church, all the stuff I do for God can make me right with God. If we drift from the cross... We'll give up in the fight against sin. We'll just give up. Because we won't think we can win. Or we'll chase around after every latest Christian fad, a new book that promises us the the key to finally being free, the key to, to seeing victory over our sins. And ultimately, if we drift away from the cross, our lives will become small and worldly and very compromised. We will not be content and satisfied and full of joy as servants of Jesus can be. And we will leave no lasting legacy with our lives because we have lost sight of the heart of God. And you see, there is no neutrality in your relationship with God. You are rollerblading slightly uphill. You're either going forwards or you're drifting far away from him. There is no neutral ground. There is no coasting. 
It is a relationship. You're either growing closer to God or you're falling away from him. So I can honestly stand here and say to you, I have nothing new to tell you at the beginning of this year tonight. But what I am going to tell you is the most important thing you will ever hear in your life. So we're jumping in uh, to Romans 8. Uh, we're halfway through Paul's greatest ever letter, and it's as if he's paused in his argument to answer a few questions that have been bubbling up from the previous chapters. So, yeah, Paul, look, I know you say Jesus' death makes us right with God, but the thing is, I keep falling into sin. Quite often it's the same sin, actually. Uh, surely at some point God's patience is going to run out, isn't it? He's going to say, look, I've had enough. I gave you forgiveness, I gave you a new life, and this is how you repay me. Look, my patience is worn thin. You're out of here. Or secondly, Paul, what do I do about the fact that I, I wouldn't admit it, but deep down I'm quite glad I'm not free of some of my sins. I quite like them. There's not so much fighting as cherishing that goes on. And the truth is, even when I do try and fight them, I find... I just, deep down, I'm so addicted. I don't seem to be able to or even to want to be free of my sin. What do I do, Paul? And Paul's response is Romans chapter 8. And the primary purpose of this chapter is not to tell you what to do. It's not a chapter that says, change your behavior, do this. That's not what it's primarily there for. It's not about what we must do. Instead, Paul's purpose is to encourage us, to excite us, to fire our hearts with what God has done. He wants to draw our affections away from loving sin and to teach us to love God and to believe God and to have hope for our lives because not what we can do, but because of what God has done. Basically, he tells us this. He says, we dwell in a new era now, after Jesus' death and resurrection. We have a new identity. We're in Christ by faith, which means we have a new status as completely free from condemnation. We're just going to stick to verses 1 to 4 tonight, so don't panic if it gets to 7.25 and we're still only on verse 3. We're only going to the end of verse 4. Look at verse 1 with me. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Firstly, notice how he describes your relationship to Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, he doesn't say Jesus is someone you follow, although you do. He doesn't say Jesus is someone you're friends with, although you are. He doesn't say Jesus is someone who you believe in, although that is also true. He says you are in Christ. So tightly bound to Christ by faith that we are in him. That what is true of him is true of you and me. And the result of being in Christ is no condemnation now. There was a time when the the sword of God's judgment was rightfully hanging over our heads, poised to strike. And there was a time when the placard around our necks read, condemned justly, but not now. First one actually begins with the word nothing in the original. You can paraphrase it as nothing. 
I tell you, if you were in Christ, nothing could be found in all the universe that could condemn you as guilty. Now think about that for a moment. Paul is saying, look, if there's a million years between now and when Judgment Day takes place, and if God spends all of that million years scrutinizing in tiny detail every aspect of your life, looking at everything you've done, listening and replaying every word you've said, exploring the depths of your heart to see everything that you thought, every desire that you cherished, everything you set your love on, reviewing every website you ever looked at, listening to every person, witnessing, interviewing everybody who you had a relationship with that you knew, that you met, that you worked for. Even if God did all of those things for a million years, If you trust in Christ, at the end of it, at Judgment Day, God would say, no condemnation. God knows the shameful secrets, the thoughts and the lusts that we have buried so deep that we wish we could forget them. God knows it all. He sees it all in broad daylight. And he says, if you are in Christ, no condemnation condemnation. How on earth can that be the case for people who sin like you and me? Well, verses 2 to 3, because. Firstly, verse 2, because God has set us free by his Spirit. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Because of what Jesus did, we have been set free from the law of sin and death. Now, law here doesn't mean the Ten Commandments. Law means the power or the principle that governs us. We are under the power of sin and of death. That's our natural state. It's how all of us as humans are until we turn to Christ. In other words, we're addicted to sin. Now, sometimes we have the self-discipline to resist an individual sin, but what I can't change is that my heart wants to sin. I've got the self-discipline to resist sometimes, but I can't seem to rewire my heart to not want to sin. And because we're under the power of sin, we were under the power of death. Condemned to eternal death is just the just sentence for people who have turned our backs on the God of life. See, if I turn my back on God and ignore the ultimate source of truth and love and justice and beauty, I deserve eternal death. But notice, he says more here than just that in Christ we're free from the condemnation our sins deserve. He says we've been set free from the law, the power of sin and death. We are no longer bound, if we trust in Christ, to give in. We are no longer addicts or slaves. At which point there are two options. One, Paul is a liar. Two, I am an idiot. Don't laugh, you're in the same boat. Because unless you're wildly different from me, you feel quite addicted and unable to break the power of a number of sins. My day-to-day experience is that although since I started to follow Christ, I have seen some real change, my heart still feels addicted to self-pity, to pride, to lust, to worldliness, and to a heap of other sins that I am not even aware of. 
So how on earth do we reconcile the difference between what my experience tells me and what the Bible tells me? I went to a a school where prefects had the sort of power that most third world dictators can only dream of. (laughs) And I remember a few years after school, when I was working in London, I bumped into the guy who was the head boy of school, Dave Horsley, when I was in my first year. And I bumped into him on a tube train and I stood up to give him my seat. (laughs) Because that's what I would have had to do at school. It's ridiculous. I mean, he has no power over me at all. I was the same size as him now, but... The thing is, I'd spent a year basically being something below, whatever the rung is below a slave, to him. And I was so used to when I saw him, I did what he said and I gave him my seat, that I I just automatically responded that way. And you and I have been set free by Jesus. He has busted open the dungeon doors and he smashed the shackles off our feet and broke the chains off our wrists. But we wore the chains for so long that we can still feel as if we're wearing them. And we lived in that dungeon for so long that it still feels like home. And so we go back to our sins and we feel like we have to go back to them. But you don't. It comes down to a question of trust. Who is more trustworthy? Is the promise-keeping God of the Bible telling us lies? Or is it just possible? I know it's a long shot, but is it just possible that maybe my feelings and my emotions aren't utterly 100% reliable arbiters of what is true? You are free. I know you don't feel like it, but you are free. I have the authority of the God of the universe to tell you, he has set you free. Now live it. But how is that the case? (laughs) It's one thing to say it. What does he mean by saying we're free from the power of sin and death? How has the power been broken? And he tells us that in verse 3 where he shows us that God has condemned sin in his son. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. Now this time by law, he does mean the Ten Commandments, God's good and perfect standards that show us the right way to live that show us the path of blessing and that reflect his beautiful character. But as good as the law is, it cannot set our hearts free from sin. Not because of any deficiency in the law, but because of a deficiency in our hearts. You see, the law can just show me the way to go, but it can't make me want to go that way. The law can show me uh, what is good, but it can't stop me wanting what is bad. But what the law could not do, what we cannot do, God did. And he did it, it says, by sending his son in the likeness of sinful man. That doesn't mean Jesus was a sinner. It means that Jesus came as a man. It wasn't God pretending to be a man that first Christmas. Jesus was fully God and fully man. The only difference between Jesus and you and me was he never sinned. 
But Jesus didn't just become a human to show us how to live. A fat lot of use that would have been. You know, we've already got God's law showing us what miserable sinners we are. The last thing we need is Jesus living a perfect life to show us what miserable sinners we are. But that is not the primary reason Jesus came. He does show us the perfect life, but the focus of his mission was to be, verse 3, a sin offering. Uh, That phrase is channeling the Old Testament. Uh, The sin offering was a bull or a goat that was killed in the temple. What happened was, if you became aware of sin in your life, you go to the temple and you would lay your hands on the head of the animal, symbolically transferring your guilt, and then the priest would cut its throat to kill the animal to show that the punishment for sin is death. And Jesus died on the cross as the ultimate sin offering. Instead of symbolically placing our hands on him, physically placing our hands on him and symbolically transferring guilt, we put our trust in him which really transfers our guilt to him. And he took the penalty in full, dying our death in our place on the cross in history. So in other words, sin was condemned, but it was condemned in Jesus on the cross rather than in me on judgment day. And that is why we are free from condemnation. Because sin has already been condemned. It's interesting, in uh, his account of the death of Jesus, uh, Luke records that people mocked Jesus. And three times Luke records that they say, he saved others, he can't save himself. And it's deliberate irony because Luke wants us to see that that is exactly right. They just don't understand why. God had to punish sin. If God is good and fair and just, he can't just turn a blind eye to the wicked things that have been done by us or to us. So the only way that Jesus could save others is by not saving himself. By sacrificing himself in the place of sinners like you and me who deserve that death. And because he took it all, there is now no condemnation left for you and for me. None has been left. The debt has been paid. You trust in Jesus and you are free. Well, the passage in the final verse finishes where it starts with the results of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the implications for us. And he tells us that those declared righteous by the Son's death are taught to live righteously by the Son's Spirit. Verse 4, so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. The righteous requirements of the law, the law's demand for justice and perfection, they're fully met by Jesus, his life and his death, and they're met in us as we put our faith in Jesus. They're met in us who now live by the Spirit's power rather than under the power of sin. Now that is a dense verse. It is quite complex to understand what's going on. But here's the big idea. We face a double dilemma because of sin. We are guilty. There is a punishment that must be applied to sin. Eternal death, final separation from God. But secondly, we are addicted. We're under the power of sin. 
There's an inner compulsion that drives us to sin. All the New Year's resolutions in the world are no good to me because it may be a new year, but it's the same old me with the same old desires and the same old weaknesses. What I need is a new heart. Now, here's the thing, and here's what verse 4 is, is, uh, is helping us to see. If God released sinners from the power of sin and death but never punished the sin, he would not be a good God. Imagine if at the end of the trial of the, the murderers of uh, Lee Rigby, the poor family have sat there uh, hearing how they, they ran him down in the street and then butchered his body like a slab of meat in public. And they were quite open in court saying, yep, we did it. Imagine if at the end the judge had said, what matters most is that we help the, the men who did this. That we educate them, that we free them from the monstrous ideology that, that, that enslaved them and caused them to do this. And so what we're going to do is we're going to set them free and they're going to come and live with me in my beautiful village. And they're going to learn to love England as they see what a wonderful place it really is. Now, that would be just disgusting. I mean, can you imagine the family sat there saying, what do you mean that's the most important thing? What about justice? What about our son who was murdered? But God doesn't do that. He doesn't ignore the demands of justice. He is the perfect judge. So verse 4, he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met. Sin must be punished in those who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. In other words, those whom God brings to new life and gives his Spirit to, he has punished their sins in full on the cross. Justice has been met. Likewise, though, if God just punished sin, but he left our hearts addicted to sin, he'd be like a foolish parent who always forgives their child whatever they do, but never disciplines them, never teaches them to stop doing the wicked things they do. But God is not like that. As this verse makes clear, those he saves, he changes. God begins a work of restoration and healing. Those whom he has met the law for, those whom have been forgiven through Jesus' condemnation in their place, walk according to the Spirit, are set free. God's Spirit lives in them, teaching us now to live for God, not for self. It is a lifelong work as he weans us off sin. And it's a sometimes hard and painful work. But it is a work that God will complete. So God is neither unjust nor foolish. Our guilt is punished in Jesus and our hearts are set free so that under the influence of the Holy Spirit, our behavior really will start to change. That's the big idea that's going on here. Now, that doesn't mean you can expect sinless perfection if you put your trust in Jesus. But you can and should and must expect real change. The power of the Holy Spirit. In the arm wrestle against sinful desire, suddenly we find the huge muscle-bound arm of the Holy Spirit wrapped around ours, helping us fight back. Perhaps even better still, the Holy Spirit is at work rewiring the tastes of my heart so that alongside the desire for sin, there is a growing desire to please God. So it's not just a battle between discipline and desire, which is always just a a game of the clock. How long can I hold this time? It starts to be a battle of 
the desire for God against the desire for sin. And that is a much fairer fight. But keeping our eyes on the cross, steering straight towards the cross, is the only safe path. It is only as we look to the cross and the condemnation of Christ and the power of God that we will steer the right course as Christians. See, we all get blown off course. I've met lots of Christians who struggle with guilt. I've struggled with it myself at many times in my Christian life. Sometimes sin just feels too heavy. You think there's no way God can forgive something like this. I've been a Christian too long and yet I've done that. How could God ever forgive me for something like this? It's just too ugly, too depraved, or the consequences for other people have been far too awful. And we feel a great weight of guilt. Or some of us have never turned to God, and we feel certain that given what our life is really like, if those nice, shiny people in church really knew some of the things that went on in the darkness of my heart, there's no way they, or especially not their God, could ever accept me. Bizarrely, this is the the flip side of those of us who think we're okay with God. But we think we're okay with God because, well, actually we're doing all right. There are no massive ugly sins in my past. My life at the moment is pretty good. I'm following Jesus pretty faithfully. Not perfect, but most people would say I'm pretty sorted. Both those attitudes have totally lost sight of the cross. Both have drifted into the shipping lanes. Because both think God will accept me or God is bound to reject me on the basis of how good or how awful I am. Both put my status before God as a hostage to my obedience. If I'm doing well, especially if that sin is under control, then then I must be in God's good books. But if I've fallen and I'm wallowing in mess and sin, then God is angry and I'm lost. Look away from yourself and look up to God. Look to the cross. Of course God has to condemn sin. But he has done in Christ on the cross. Keep looking at the cross and you will realize that your very best day is never going to be pure enough to earn your way into God's good books. And your very worst day could never be bad enough to see you thrown out. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation, but only if you are in Christ. Others of us, I guess, will have a very different problem. Uh, We're happy trusting Jesus' death uh, for, well, for the guilt of our sin. Uh, We don't mind saying, you know, we're very happy saying uh, Jesus' death has the power to to deal with my, uh, you know, I'm free from hell, I'm free from condemnation, all that sort of thing. But what we struggle to believe, if we're honest is that Jesus' death has the power to release me, not from the consequences of eternal sin, but here and now. Uh, Some of us are trying hard. We're doing our best to resist sin. But we know deep down that it's always just a matter of the clock. How long before I give in again? How long before I say it, do it, dream it, fail to stand up again? Others of us, if we're honest, we've given up even trying. Let's... Let's be frank about it. We're not a public disgrace as Christians, but we've stopped growing a long time ago. 
We're certainly not fighting sins actively anymore. And again, both of us have drifted from the cross and into danger. We're relying on our own puny strength and in the arm wrestle with desire for sin. If all I've got to rely on is my puny self-discipline, well, there's only ever going to be one result. We need to tap out and tap into a greater power. The power lies in the cross. In the cross, we see Jesus win the decisive victory over sin and death. He overpowered Satan and he crushed his head. Satan is a beaten foe, but it's only at the cross that I see that. He set us free. When I look to the cross, I'm reminded the dungeon doors have been smashed open. I don't need to lie here. I'm no longer a prisoner. I'm no longer a slave. I can get up. But we forget. We get distracted. We become discouraged. And like the ship, we need continually, daily, to steer ourselves back to the cross. You never outgrow your need of this as a Christian. The most mature, the happiest, the most content, the Christians who are living the most effective lives for God in this world are the ones who don't move on and grow out of coming back to the cross daily. They're the ones who live at the foot of the cross. See, the mains electricity supply empowering the Christian life is at the cross, and our batteries have a very, very short run-down time. It's the way to look at it. We need to recharge our batteries there daily. We come back to the cross. It reminds us I'm forgiven. I don't earn my way. I don't have to keep this level of obedience or God is mad. I'm forgiven. I'm loved. My sin has been punished. And at the cross, I'm reminded there is power. The power of Jesus' death that unlocks my, the Holy Spirit, that gives me power to fight sin. It's there for me every day. But it's only at the cross I'm reminded of that truth. I won't be reminded of it at work. I won't be reminded of it on Facebook. I won't be reminded of it when I go out for a night with my friends. I'll only be reminded of it when I turn back and look at the cross. Don't let church or Bible study or your own private Bible reading and prayer become something you get. Well, it's just the easiest thing to ditch out when a better offer comes up, as it always does in London. Stop seeing daily Bible reading as a chore, something I've got to do. It is not. It's plugging into the mains. Listen to talks that in the past have really stirred you with how wonderful Jesus' death and his forgiveness is. Turn to passages in the Bible regularly that remind you, that refocus you, that rewire you, that re-energize you with the death of Jesus in your place, the resurrection of Jesus that brings you new life. See, in the cross alone, you will find the reminder, the truth that sets you free. The cross alone will tell you, you cannot ever be good enough to get by on your own efforts. God will punish sin. And at the cross alone, you will be reminded that God has done that in Christ, and so you are free. At the cross alone, you will find that God has broken not just the penalty for sin, but also the power. Your heart does not need to keep going back to the same sins. Turn to Christ, and you'll find there is power to fight 
to honor God, to live gloriously. All of us need to hear the word of the Lord. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we are so sorry for how stupid we are. We are sorry that we try to impress you. We assume that we can be good enough to, to waltz into heaven, to be accepted by you on the basis of how good we are. We're sorry for our arrogance and our foolishness. We're sorry too from the times when we despair because our sins seem so heavy that we can't imagine we'll ever be forgiven. Forgive us for failing to trust in the death of Jesus. Thank you, our Father, that we find at the cross the double cure for sin that saves us from wrath and makes us pure. Help us, we pray, to turn to you. Help us, we pray, to trust your promise of forgiveness. And help us, to, we pray, to live as people who have been set free from the power of sin. And we ask all this for the glory of your Son who died and rose again and has sent his Spirit. Amen.